Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, this is uh, Al Franken. Welcome to the, and, and, and pardon the egotism, uh, to the Al Franken podcast. But it's, it's look, it's one of 600,000 podcasts. In fact, at first, I was going to do a podcast on um, cuts of beef. Uh, focusing on brisket, but I discovered there are currently 12 podcasts on brisket, and um, seven of them are really quite good. So instead, I decided to do a podcast about my interests in what I consider important policy issues, uh, more than in the day-to-day politics that seem to get chewed over quite a bit. For example, last week, I interviewed Michael Mann, the Nobel Prize-winning climate scientist, and my first question to him was, how fucked are we? And Michael paid me a great compliment. He said, how fucked are we is the right question, as opposed to the commonly asked, are we fucked? And I felt actually quite good about that. But his message was that what we do now will make an enormous difference in what the future will be like for us and for our children and our grandchildren. And I have four grandchildren who range from age six down to two and a half months, and very likely they will be around for the end of this century. And what we do in the next few years will make an enormous difference in what their world will be like. And that is just one just one of the reasons that this election is so important. In fact, I think this election, I think this is the second most important election of our lifetime. The most important one being the last one. Donald Trump cannot be president for six and a half more years. The damage that this guy has already done to the courts Last week, uh, this 5-4 Supreme Court decision that federal judges can't strike down the most egregiously partisan gerrymandering by state legislators and, 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 and governors in, in order to elect as many state legislators and congressmen from their, their own party as possible, that's last week. And that 5-4 decision obviously wouldn't have happened if Trump hadn't been elected president. And if he's elected again, we will almost certainly, we will most certainly have a 6-3 or 7-2 conservative Supreme Court by the end of Trump's second term, and they will be Federalist Society 100 percenters. What would that mean? What would that mean to labor rights? What would that mean in terms of corporate power, in terms of health care, and on climate. Trump, of course, pulled out of Paris. So instead of leading the world, as we should, on on climate, we are the only country in the world that is not signed on now to the Paris Accord, and that is sickening. Nicaragua and Syria are in. Congratulations, Syria. On health care, yes, we should be having the debate over single-payer versus public option. But let's remember, we won 40 House seats on health care because Trump and the Republicans 
showed their hand on health care in 2017, and Americans learned what it would mean if the ACA went away, if it were repealed and replaced by them. Let's not lose this election arguing on the one hand that we should be like every other developed nation in the world and have universal health care, but unlike every other developed nation, completely eliminate all private health insurance. It's an argument we can have after we win. It's a good argument to have, but we won't win if some Democrats insist on absolute purity on every single issue and then don't work for or even vote for the Democratic nominee who happens to have a different view on anything. That's what happened last time. So we've got this Federalist Society Supreme Court. We got this giant tax cut for those at the very top. We have a toxic president who lies Sometimes I think just for the sake of lying. Who calls news fake news and fake news news. Who appoints incompetent, venal, self-interested cronies to fill these important jobs in the federal government. So our environment gets degraded. Species are disappearing. Our students and our workers are screwed right and left. Immigrants get treated like they are not human. And we have a president and a Republican Congress that would dismantle all the gains we've made in health care and does everything they can to prevent us from getting to universal care and getting pharmaceutical prices down to what they are in Canada and Europe and the rest of the developed world. Work hard for your choice for our party. Work your ass off. But if your candidate doesn't win, turn around and work just as hard for whoever our nominee is. Even if you're not in any way a fan of him or her, we have to beat Trump. We have to beat Trump. No votes for Jill Stein and no staying home. Now, this last week, we had the two debates uh, with 20 Democratic candidates. Uh, The DNC has a tough job wrangling this giant field of candidates. There is no perfect way to do this. But I want to weigh in a little on the debate. I think we should have had Governor Bullock on that stage. I would argue that the DNC didn't have to disqualify the poll that they disqualified that would have made him qualified to do the debate because it was an open poll. An open poll is actually harder to get to a percent on. They could have accepted that poll and had someone in the debate who has been elected governor twice in Montana, a state that Trump won by 20 points, and and Bullock won by a good margin in a just awful year in Montana. He has a progressive record. And he should be in the debates. I do not have a dog in this fight. I do not know who I'm supporting. The first caucus in Iowa is six months away. We all have lots of time to make our decision. Now, I would hope that we have a different format for the next debates. No audience. We need a debate where the candidates are not all ramping up to an applause line and where they're not rewarded for not yelling over everybody else in in order to get the floor. But let's have a real debate where everyone is not playing to the crowd. Let's let people watching at home decide what they like and what they find compelling and convincing Just let's have a debate like that. This is a very bifurcated show, but I'm going to do that from time to time. My interview today is someone who is tied to politics and to issues, but only in the sense that he spent four years running 
an extremely successful multi-Emmy award-winning TV show that took a very, very dark look at a fictional set of characters who are completely cynical and self-motivated. And that show captured an aspect of Washington that does unfortunately exist. By now, I think you know that I'm talking about David Mandel. No, you don't. You don't know who the showrunner for Veep is, but David Mandel ran Veep for three seasons. I screw that up right at the start of the interview. I think you'll get a kick out of that. (laughs) But if you're interested in the process of writing and producing one of the great TV shows, he also worked on Seinfeld, he worked on SNL, I think you'll enjoy this. So please give a listen, won't you? Uh, David Mandel is uh, joining me from Los Angeles. David has been the showrunner for the past four seasons of Veep, which is, uh, everybody knows what Veep is, is their HBO's smash political comedy, which has uh, takes a jauntist view <laughs> of American <laughs> politics. Uh, David, thank you for joining us from West Hollywood. Thank you very much. I have to, I, I have to correct you. I'm sorry, right from the get-go. Technically, it's been three seasons, but four years because of the cancer. So, three seasons, but four years. David Mandel is joining me from Los <laughs> Angeles. David has been the showrunner. Let me uh, the correct you again, Al. A couple seasons. of other things. It's not David. It's Jason Mandel. you've been calling me david since the 90s and it's about time i corrected you jason mandel is joining us uh jason and i have uh been friends for quite a while when i when i knew you as david um we we met in 91 right yeah uh i myself and uh a couple of my cohorts and ex-writing partners were i was a junior at harvard and I was part of the Harvard Lampoon, and we did a uh, the first Harvard Lampoon TV project, which was called MTV Give Me Back My Life, a Harvard Lampoon parody. And it was at Comedy Central, and if memory serves, you had an office there. You were sort of a comedy consultant of some sort. <laughs> yes, that, I or you needed a free office. That's how yes. I always took it. Um, and we sort of hit it off, and then uh, the following year, you brought me back when... Uh, you, we, uh, Comedy Central uh, did the comedy Indecision 92, the comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican convention. Yeah, we and that's, did four I, hours a night. Yeah, of which both was just amazing. And that's when you and I really, I felt like, started to both obviously write together a lot and also sort of really get to know each other. The first time around was very nice and fun. Right. Uh, but that's I, I, I remember like, the only yeah. the only advice I gave on that, as I remember, uh, was to a set designer. And I said, um, don't make the sets funny. They did not listen. Uh, it was. It, it, it was. was a, I, I saw what yeah. he was doing. I'm saying, you're, you're making the set funny. Don't make the set funny. The fun- <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a fu- it, was, it was actually, it was so weird. It was the greatest learning experience I ever had because it's the worst show I've ever seen. Like, everything was It was, was wrong. bad. It was oh, bad. Oh, it's really bad. And I just remember even as- Tell them I, the know, idea I, again. It's uh, MTV's- it was, a, it was supposed to be MTV's own fake anniversary celebration of them, like, telling their own story. Okay, that's so not was, a terrible yeah. idea. That's no, a, I actually yeah. thought it was a pretty decent <laughs> idea. But it just got, I mean, besides like funny sets, things like that should have been on film or on video, things that should have been on video or on film. Well, you so were like, a junior and Yeah, in but college, I mean, it was one of those so things where like, that and, and, well, I knew it. It was the people they hired to do it that didn't oh, seem to okay. know it. Yeah, that's what was so funny was we were looking around going, this doesn't seem right. But that, I guess, was a fascinating lesson. But when you have of... a set designer saying, this set is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I noticed you worked in Harvard right away. <laughs> I like to get that in yeah. in the first 30 or 40 seconds if I can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, you're editing now uh, yeah. the, the, the final season of the- I'm actually on the final episode as we, uh, as we speak. I'm on the final episode. And you, you've been editing since early January. Yeah. 
Normally we do 10 episodes, and this season we actually only did seven episodes, although the episodes are longer, kind of like Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> and basically what it was was, for production reasons and budgets and all those kinds of things, we you know, basically pulled three episodes out so that each episode we could shoot longer. And I was supposed to basically, you know, throw three episodes in the garbage. And all I really did was sort of jam them into the other seven suitcases. You know, I just hid pieces of those episodes wherever so I could. So you did the whole story that you'd worked out yes, over Yes, everything had been worked out. So I just kind of stuck things where I could. Um, okay, now you're so, using the oh. I thing. So let's explain yes. what a showrunner is. Um, showrunner, it's, it's interesting. Movies and TVs are very different. In, in, in movies, the director is kind of king. He's yes. king of the set, whatever he says and goes. Right. It's the exact opposite on TV, especially on sitcoms, where the showrunner, who is sometimes the creator, although not in my case, Veep was created by Armando Iannucci, when he left and I took over, I became the showrunner. And so basically, I am... The and there was no pressure there. You know, it didn't bother me as much at the time. I don't know if it was writer ego or what, but I definitely there was a moment right before we were supposed to read what was going to be my first episode mm -hmm. where they won their first Emmy for best show that night. And it was just sort of like, uh -oh. oh, boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess. But I looked on the bright side, which was my sort of feeling was, well, at least they got one. That was sort of my attitude. Well, you know, at least they're not hoping I'll get them one. They've got one. And they can always and say. And Julia had won like that year. Well, Julia had won a million years. times. But the show, that was the first time. I know. Time that was the, the show. show. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that year you won uh, one of the actors, supporting actors, you know, best written uh, comedy show. Uh, and so, I think casting. You got a casting? Yeah, very possibly. Yeah, so and because, I, maybe it's because Iannucci was going and they knew it and they just, they did one for catering. That, really? That year. I didn't realize yes, that. Yes, that was the first year they did, did one for catering. Well, I think we've got a really good <laughs> shot at catering this year. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. So, uh, okay, so uh, you, you did Indecision 92. Yes. And you were, uh, this is, again, the four-hour thing we did on uh, Comedy Central. It was kind yeah, of the it was first kind of political like, thing. Lots of political stuff, but we were filling time like it was a telethon. I just remember, you know, anything could be an idea. But it was, I, it was so much fun, so much fun. And, and the reason uh, we did it, we covered it four hours every night and there's a reason the networks uh Don't. at that time were doing like a, an hour <laughs> right and uh so uh but it was fun it was a lot of fun and i thought i just went okay this guy is he's got it this guy's great and i had been on you know with the show for i don't know for like 11 years and i had recommended very few writers to the show i was smigel i recommended smigel to the show and uh, so I, I go to Lauren and I say, uh, this guy, Dave Man David Mandel, he's just, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. So, uh, of course, she'll hire him because I, you know, because of what I'm saying. And he goes, well, that's up to Downey. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. How I, I haven't recommended anyone. Yeah, it's been about 11 years yeah. since I recommended somebody. <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, of course, Downey went, sure, you know. 
Um, well, so- well, I will say this, which was there was the moment where you sort of, I don't know, somewhere I think after we had finished where you sort of pulled me aside or in your office or something and basically said, hey, I'm going to talk to Lauren. You should be at the show is uh, uh, still one of the, the you know, it's it's right up there with birth of my children and all that kind of stuff. It was a pretty, pretty great moment. And then when I had to go meet Downey. I didn't necessarily think of it as anything out of the ordinary. I wasn't sitting there like judging like, wait a second, Al said he would get me on the show. I was more than happy to meet Jim Downey and sort of do all of that. And we had, of course, a sort of classic Jim Downey sort of, you know, bizarre <laughs> meeting where like he kept me waiting for like, I don't know, like four hours in the lobby of 30 Rock. And he's and not we, a rude guy. Yeah. He's just weird. No, right? it was not rude. And it was brilliant, just, brilliant yeah. uh, one of the great writers on SNL. He and I wrote a lot of the political stuff together. In fact, one of the first things you and me and Downey wrote together was uh, Clinton going into McDonald's. All right, boys. Let's stop in here for a second. I'm a little parched from the jog. Uh, Sir, we've only been jogging for three blocks. Besides, Mrs. Clinton asked us not to let you into any more fast food places. Well, I just want to mingle with the American people, talk with some real folks, maybe get a Diet Coke or something. All right, fine. But please, don't tell Mrs. Clinton. Jim, let me tell you something. There's going to be a whole bunch of things we don't tell Mrs. Clinton. Um, do you favor the uh, decision to send military forces to Somalia? Hmm. That's a good question. Yes, I do. Let me tell you why. See, right now, we're sending food to Somalia. But it's not getting to the people who need it because it's being intercepted by warlords. <laughs> It's other countries, too. Like, your McNugget is released from Great Britain to Somalia, intercepted by warlords. <laughs> this guy's Malaya fish sandwich, aid from Italy, warlords. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how much doesn't matter how much food you send, um, a McDLT, a hot apple pie, it's just going to end up in the hands of warlords. Clinton was popping up all over D.C. Remember that? He was just sort of, it was like something you'd not, we had not seen before in terms of this very sort of accessible president. He really seemed... Just remember so when that was like, wow, we've never seen that before. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great that we're seeing that. Yeah, it seems so daring. <laughs> um, and now you just kind of wish, can't we just have a guy where we don't say that four times a day? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you do SNL for how many years? Like two? Uh, I did three, three. years, okay. which at the time seemed like a very solid, you know, like a like a solid amount of time, although I feel like after I left, people like I don't know. There are people there now that have been there like I don't know twenty years. Like the the people that came in after us, mm-hmm. like just stayed forever. But three years seemed like a fine time. I had gone gray, I believe, during the three years, so that was exciting. Um, but I, I I don't know. It was tiring and it was hard. I mean, you remember what it was like. I mean, it was always hard, but it got very hard. I felt like at the time. Okay, so but, so yeah. you leave the show to go to. I want to go through your life. Very yeah, sure. No, here. I go to Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah, you go to Seinfeld. Good move. Good move. Yeah, not a bad move at the time. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and how many years on Seinfeld? I was there for three years. So I was there one year with Larry David, and then Larry left, and then two years where Jerry was sort of running the show, and then obviously Larry came back at the end to end it. You know, I, I, I left SNL, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was as much as much as SNL was sort of a phenomenon. I think people forget what it was like on Seinfeld in its heyday. So uh, then, it, you, the Seinfeld's over. You get like what's called an overall deal, right? Yeah, a, yeah, an overall deal, or sometimes known as a development deal. Exactly. Okay, you develop a couple things. Uh, you do a movie. We did Eurochip, which was a teen comedy that we wrote and directed. If you're if you're like 23 years old, you think it's really brilliant. Um, and we, went, we did the well. Cat if you're 23 hat. years old when the movie came out, no, you had to be like 14 <laughs> or 12 when the movie came out. That's yeah. just, if you were 23, that was already oh, too late. I see, yeah, I see. yeah, you had to be like nine years old and seeing boobs for the first time, and then you're pretty happy. Congratulations! With me. Yes, by the way. yes. Um, Taking yeah, we, the you know, we did a, uh, Seinfeld you know, credit and. 
There you go. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we do with it. But um, <laughs> somewhere in there after Eurotrip, we needed an office, and Larry David was doing Curb Your Enthusiasm and had an extra office. And basically, we kind of made a deal where we would get the office and kind of, you know, you know, kind of kibitz a little bit from mm-hmm. the side mm-hmm. on curb, and then that kind of developed into eventually us helping him break the seasons, and I guess sort of, you know, break the seasons ex- means plan out, plan out the entire you know year's worth of the story. So we would help him basically come up with the whole season, the arc, write the outlines and whatnot, and then we moved over to both exec producing the show with him and helping him run the show, directing the show, and editing the show, and in between that. We we were writing movies like we wrote, we did a big rewrite on The Grinch. We wrote The Cat in the Hat. We did some work with Sasha Baron Cohen. We eventually wrote the movie The Dictator for Sasha. So we were kind of doing Curb and that. So we would do Curb, then Larry would so take a So you were working and uh, doing doing very well. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but let's go, I, I, I want to talk about editing because- sure. You've been editing since uh, early January. Yeah. And you're almost done. You almost la- done. You're on the last show. I had an approach toward editing. I didn't edit as much as you um, at all, but I, I would sometimes go in. How, how long would be your longest day of editing? Go in at like 10, you know, leave at like 3 in the morning. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's a lot of being in a room. It's being in a room. I have a standing desk so I can kind of at least not just sit. Um, but it's a lot of staring and concentrating. And there are days where I'll do a long day, but somewhere in the middle I I have to take like a 20-minute break and just close my eyes from the repetition because editing is repetition. It's often just watching the same scene, the same lines, multiple takes of of just the same – person saying the same thing over and over and over again because you're looking for those subtle performance differences different movements of the camera and whatnot and it 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 gets to you i don't you know i don't know how else to say that it and and does it cut together maybe one yes uh, if, if one someone's take. looking down yeah. in a take and then you're trying to get somewhere where they're looking up that's not going to piece together the way you want it to and there are tricks around that uh, often if you have a big wider <laughs> shot you can go to a big wide shot yeah. to try and get around those things but again you might have to watch let's say 12 different takes and different camera angles to figure out that one little transition and that's editing it's just that times a million yeah i had this idea years ago that uh and this is dark now by the way veep is a very dark show yeah and it may have even gotten a little darker this year too yes and and um there are lines spoken on veep uh that aren't spoken on other shows yeah. And there's not one character, one redeeming character. Uh, I think maybe uh, Sam Richardson who plays uh, Rich, yeah, who plays Richard Splett is 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 the one decent character who who I at least I like to think still believes that government can do good in kind of the very kind of classic like maybe even Lyndon Johnson great society kind of way. Yes. Like I genuinely believe he is there. He's naive, but he is there He's to do guileless. some good. He's guileless, but because everybody is so rotten and has <laughs> agendas, they mis- often mistake his guile for uh, his guilelessness for guile. Right. <laughs> they assume it's a con of some sort. Because they can't believe someone's Right. No guileless. one could be like that. Exactly. Right. No one could be that genuinely guileless. Yeah. Right. So he's a great uh, – that was a brilliant uh, choice, bringing him in. Whose was that? Who did that? That was Armando. He existed before me, uh-huh. but I would like to take some credit for kind of moving him more front and center, if I, if I might say. We kind of fell into this thing where Selena – sort of ended up sort of identifying him as what she thought was much be- much better and smarter than the rest of her team. And mm-hmm. so she has elevated him uh, to her chief of staff. He worked hard. He worked hard season. and yes. always had uh, answers. 
Yes. Sometimes he'd be wrong, but he'd correct himself. You could recount the voter-verified paper audit trails. Sometimes there are big discrepancies. Sir, in that case, we motion... On the other hand, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in Crowley v. Nevada that you don't have to recount the paper audit trails in local elections. That's Crowley versus Nevada. Uh, that's Crowley? Actually, you know what? I can email you. Or, you know, you can email me at uh, splet2 at spletnet.net. Splat one's my father. I mean, I'll be sad to see him go, but it'll be nice to get my hands on that handle. You know? Okay, so it's a very, 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 very dark show. Yes. Okay. Uh, so this is a dark idea. But this is what I thought. This is a long time ago because I've edited it. Somewhere in the world where they have a hostage situation and hostages are being held for years, you know, sometimes, that as a humanitarian thing, the Hollywood would work with the uh, people who took the hostages, the villains here, and uh, fly in like an edit, all the material for an edit suite. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, and uh, <laughs> they'd go somewhere and be blindfolded and driven through whatever they had, the desert or jungle or wherever it is. Sure, into the caves, yep. In the caves. And they'd set up the edit suite, and the hostages would edit and so this, you know, and then Hollywood could just get like we, we cut the chase every which way. You know, we want to see the car jump, you know, jump. the yeah, truck. Every, They would just have the time to cut every variation. And then you could just watch. You could just watch it. Yeah. And yeah. then you, and they would be so thankful. It would fill the hours. Yeah. <laughs> OK, that was a that's a dark idea. I will say, often when you're deep in the edit, it does feel like someone is holding the hostage, <laughs> yes. if that helps. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think maybe that's why I thought of the idea. Okay. So now you take over the show, and, um, you know, it, it won all these Emmys. It's an unbelievably well-regarded show. Uh, the creator, Yanucci, had uh, left. You're now the showrunner. A uh, lot of pressure, right? But you said you didn't feel it at first. But was there any time, any time specifically where you went, oh, boy? There was two interesting moments. The first was, as I mentioned, they won the Emmys, and I kind of put that out of my head. But we then did read, I guess, the next day or two days later, we had our first table read, which is okay. what happens is uh, the entire... Uh, cast and some of the key crew members gather around a table. In our case, it's a conference room in our offices. Mm -hmm. And the script is read aloud by the actors for the first time. And they kind of perform it around the table. And obviously, the writers and everyone else are kind of judging what works, what doesn't work, etc. And our first one... Let me guess. Lots and lots of laughs. Yeah, it was a disaster. It was, <laughs> it was it was a fascinating disaster. And it was ultimately very fixable. But I, I definitely remember looking around the room, especially I think the cast, who didn't know me. And I think their attitude to begin with was, you know, how is this going to work without Armando? And then reading this first script, they did not. Uh, no, there was not a lot of looking me in the eye, I'll simply say. Um, it was not good. It was weird. I mean, I remember <laughs> listening to the notes, and I remember hearing what their problem was, and in my head kind of thinking, I can fix that very easily. But at the same time, I felt like they don't want to hear how easily I think I can fix it because they consider it such a grievous problem that I would be if you will, shitting on their emotions, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. That if I if I, if I if I said I could solve it so quickly, it, it would it would not so, allow them to kind of Okay, so air you still had your confidence. This didn't throw your It didn't throw me because I just felt like, oh, I get it. I see what has to happen. And the easiest way I can explain it for if if you're listening and you're interested in the writing side of things, there was none of the here's this, here's that, you know, where are we going, et cetera. And it was a relatively easy solve. And I guess when we did have the table read number two, people were thrilled and it was very effusive and wonderful. And I always sort of felt like it wasn't so bad when they thought it was bad and it's not so great now that they think it's good. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I kept my calm, but it was not fun. Mm -hmm. But the one thing, when the show finally came out, we sent out 
the first four episodes, you know, to be reviewed. And the first sure. episode airs, and the all when the first episode airs, uh, all the reviewers kind of review not just the first one, but usually these first four. It was really funny because when I read the reviews, and I mean this in a in a good way, some of the reviews were so effusive that. I realized at that moment that all of the reviewers were prepared for us to just suck. That they had their their expectations were so low that they were so prepared to write the Armando left Dave Mandel has ruined Veep story that when it didn't and that it was good in its own right, they kind of swung all the other way. And at and at that moment I kind of realized, "Oh wow, I guess there was a lot of pressure." But it was all in retrospect, if that makes any sense, and your your people, uh, you know, your agent, your press people, had had uh, deliberately set low expectations. You know, I never asked anybody, <laughs> but I just assumed. You know, I assumed that expectations were definitely. You know, there was a lot of talk about. Look, it's going to be different. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a little bit of lowering expectations. But I think expectations were really, really, really low. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully. C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. I remember you, before the season, you came with the writers. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we take very seriously on the show is, you know, to whatever, to the best extent we can, uh, you know, we take the reality of D.C. really Seriously, we have consultants on the show from, you know, both sides of the aisle, as they say. And when I took over the show, we did a big D.C. field trip uh, and we visited you along with a whole bunch of people in D.C. And, you know, at every stop, you know, picked up little nuggets, little vocabulary words to put into the script, settings, the way things looked. I mean, I remember looking at some of the really just terribly small, terrible offices in the White House and kind of realized, oh, this will be funny for a Jonah office, you know, one Mm -hmm. where it's almost like under a staircase because so many closets and things have been turned into offices in the White House. So you just you'd pick up stories and little bits and pieces of things and that stuff all goes into the show and then obviously when those real things kind of hit, you know, I, I think it, it, it gives us an extra level of something. So for verisimilitude. Example, yes, that's a perfect word. We'd been, I'd been told, a co- like, I don't know, I feel like over a year ago, talking to somebody about Biden running for president, uh, and that someone had floated the idea that he was possibly going to either pre-announce that he would only run for one term, perhaps, because of his age. Right. And that possibly he might, and I'm talking now, I'd heard this about a year or two ago, or possibly he might um, name a vice president like when he sets out to run, like name a vice president in Iowa. And so we put that in our second episode. Selena was talking to a big sort of donor talking about disrupting the election by doing just that thing, naming a vice president. And of course, that story about Biden and Stacey Abrams then had, had re-popped up. So when that plays in Veep, we look really good. I mean, we look like we know our business, which we do. And, uh, and those moments, I think, are especially for I guess I'll say inside the Beltway people, I think are ring especially true in a really great way. Let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anybody that you met with uh, during your Washington uh, visit, was there anybody hilariously awful? I don't know if anybody was too terrible one way or another. You know, we saw some interesting, uh, we saw some egos on display. That's what Uh, I meant. I I think uh, someone who is just full of himself. We met with this wonderful character, uh, and I enjoyed every second of it, uh, a Republican former you know, campaign guy who now is, uh, I think now he's a pretty 
hardcore Trump supporter, uh, Alex... Uh, Castellanos. Castellanos. And uh-huh. we had a very f- enjoyable time. It was him and a woman who had worked on the Romney campaign. She was a big fan. I think she would have loved a job, I will say, in retrospect. But what I remember most was the way he ordered his drink. He would order... He ordered like three fingers of some scotch. That was his order. And I just remember, oh my God, we got to put that into something. <laughs> Somebody ordering three fingers of a drink. So little things like that that actually uh, sort that, of stick That's what with I you. was looking yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. Someone just uh, yeah. <laughs> wasn't auditioning for, any, no, no, for no. anything, but was was Just a real you, character. Just a real character. I'm a. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big Washington guy. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely, you know, we were, I think, meeting him in, like, the little library room of one of those, like, like the, the Jefferson Hotel. And it was definitely, like, a, there was a sort of a big swinging dick aspect to it, in a, in a way. <laughs> yes. That's but very I, nice. That's what I was looking <laughs> yeah. for. Okay. So uh, let me ask, since we are on Trump, did Trump being president make you have to... Did you have to adjust to that? Yeah. I mean, we really – it changed a lot of things. Um, when when he won, we were basically – we were filming our sixth season. We were almost like more than halfway through the election night. And luckily, that was the season where she was sort of in the wilderness. So she wasn't in office, which – Obviously, we didn't plan on Trump winning, but it turned out to be one of the better things that ever happened to the show because it took away, if you will, the direct comparison of Selena in her office giving presidential speeches and then Trump doing it. You lost that sort of direct comparison. Thank God. Um, The fact that our show was at that point about being a former president and we were dealing with things like charity foundations and international vote monitoring and some of these other building a library and these other issues it gave us some distance we knew we were ending the sixth season with her deciding to run again we were definitely aware that we were going to be getting closer i guess both to him as president but also to his campaign for the presidency that these were things we would not be able to ignore And when we wrote what is now the final season, we definitely took that into account. Um, And we wrote a lot of it during the early days of his, you know, first year of his presidency. We wrote it um, the summer of his first year in the presidency. And then Julia got cancer that uh, end of September. And we ended up shutting down. And we shut down uh, for a a couple of months um, while she got better. And obviously, thank God, she did get better. And when we came back, there was something sort of interesting had happened, which is, and I don't know how much if you've ever talked about this with other people, when you got to that almost the, the his second January, his one year anniversary, that was the moment where Trump like ratcheted it up, like he went into like a third Trump gear. And I, I Washington <laughs> Post has talked about the fact that even like the the daily lies sort of tripled and quadrupled. He just that was the moment that like Trump could be Trump, if that makes any sense. And it it really started to get crazy uh, to me. And and I say this, and I should point this out for people listening, the show has always prided itself on never mentioning a party, maybe a little occasionally to its detriment in that there are some times where you kind of go, maybe that doesn't exactly make sense that they're not mentioning a party. But we've never identified anybody as Democrat or Republican. We don't say those words. We mention other presidents from the past, but we don't say her party or someone else's party. So the show is very agnostic when it comes to parties, but I myself am pretty liberal and have only keep going more liberal, I guess, as 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 the days go by. Um, and so it wasn't so much that it was like we're going to do Trump, but just so much of, I guess, the norms seem to change that when we came back together, uh, the writing staff, and we knew Julia was okay, and we had to start kind of getting things together, I I just felt like some of the stuff we had written was- Wasn't bad enough? I guess not bad enough, but also just was naive. You know, so much of our show in the past existed in a world where- 
I'll simply say, and I know she's not the president, but just go along with these phrases. The president, or Julia, whatever she is, as Veep, as president, as former president, says something publicly and then kind of gets hoisted on her own petard. She pays a price for saying whatever it is, or she screws up and pays a price. And that idea seems like it went out the window. The notion of a president, the whole show was about what what politicians are like behind closed doors. There are no closed doors anymore. There's it, the whole thing. It's like the White House is like, you know, solid glass. We hear every thought. We he, there's no there's no tempering of anything. And his language, dare I say, is also often crude or foul. So the idea that like secretly she's cursing sort of went away. And then so much of the show was also boy, isn't her staff stupid? Or like, how do these incompetent people work for her in the White House, in the vice presidency, wherever? And that seems like a quaint idea where he's appointed (laughs) some of the worst people, you know, just so unqualified to a variety of jobs and corruptions and people who are clearly, again, one of the great secrets of Veep, like, oh my God, these people are only in it for their own self-interests. Well, you have people, including the president, directly profiting off the presidency. So it just felt like it ratcheted up. Yeah, it just felt like we were living in a different universe and that the show didn't necessarily have to talk about Trump specifically, but you had to at least acknowledge that the world had changed. And it's difficult because I think often where we have our our best shot at analyzing stuff is with a little bit of time. We don't have that luxury. We're in the middle of it. Again, we don't want it. We're not Saturday Night Live. We're not one of the nightly talk shows where Trump says something and then we do a joke about what he says because we wrote the show last summer and obviously that would feel like an old reference. But we try and look at some of the stuff Trump does and then kind of take a bigger picture and talk about some of these issues on our show that are going on in the world, like the ongoing. Let's not get into fake news because at this point I, I, I'm sick of hearing it, but let's talk about the larger war on science and fact and maybe even war on intelligence in general. And so we tried to identify some of these larger issues. Let's talk about the rise, not just of Trump, but of authoritarian governments across the globe. Why is that going on? What does it mean? The tribalism, dare I say, the more public in its own way, uh, public misogyny or sort of attacks on women. It just all these things and trying to sort of put those all into the stew of Veep. And the show had to change because the world just got so much worse. And that's I, I don't know how else to say it. I think you uh, speak for uh, just a lot of Americans who they don't have a show to write to um you know, reflect their feelings, who are just, it it makes you feel uneasy, this presidency, almost every waking hour. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have, this is, it sounds cliched, and, you know, I don't care. I, You know, I have young kids. I have a a 9-year-old and an 11-year-old, and... I was a government major, uh, you know, back in in college. I, I, for fun, I like to read, you know, history and political biographies. And on some, you know, alternate reality, uh, you know, I think I would have been someone that would have liked to have gone to Washington and maybe, you know, what can I say, worked on a campaign. I, I, I have no. Uh, I, I had no interest in higher office, but I, I, I you know, I, I don't know what else to say. I, I believe in these systems, and it was one thing working on Veep and, you know, occasionally making fun of them, but living through it day by day, trying to sometimes explain to my children, like, why Trump said something or what it means. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's a nightmare. I don't know what else to say. No one on the show is going to say what I just said, but I definitely think the show itself, Veep, is reflecting the changing darker world. That's the easiest way to put it. Well, it's a uh, it, it is a dark, dark show, line by line. One of the darkest uh, comedies and one of the funniest comedies I've ever ever seen. So, thank you. Uh, congratulations on this season. Okay, are you at least going to take a break? I'm going to take a big break. I need to take a break uh, to spend some <laughs> some time with my family. Uh, I need to take a break to get some of my always ongoing sort of uh, just get sort of a little healthier. I, I just I need a break in general. Uh, what can I tell you? I'm going to uh, relax a little bit. Um, 
I believe as we are speaking right now, uh, they just announced, I'm going to continue on at HBO. This literally got announced right now, so by the time this airs, it will be old news. But uh, I'm sticking around HBO. I'm gonna. I'm doing a deal with them. Well, you heard it here. Tell- yeah, exactly. Uh, Breaking uh, news. Late. Yeah. And I'm very excited because, uh, you know, I've been with them through... Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. They're just so respectful of the writing process in a way that uh, I've just never experienced anywhere else. And you would like us to keep this last part in. Yeah, it's okay. I signed the deal, so it doesn't really matter one way or another. Um, But no, I'm excited to, you know, I'm excited to having, you know, what the easiest way of putting it is uh, having run someone else's show that I proudly ran and loved and, you know, tried to add and make my own. Uh, I look forward to creating something of my own. And also I have a wonderful, wonderful or had a wonderful, wonderful writing staff with people that you know from our time at SNL together. And I would love an opportunity not only just obviously to keep working with some of those people, but also if there was if they had ideas of their own and I could help those ideas come to fruition. Um, I've really enjoyed working with this cast, Frank Rich, who is an exec producer on our show. You know, these are all people I want to keep working with one way or another. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to that, Julia. I mean, the whole gang. So, what what if I had an idea? Then you just call, you just call me. You just email me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we uh, we've been talking to uh, uh, David Mandel. He'll be either on a beach somewhere, <laughs> probably not a beach, but just a little quiet, a little quiet. <laughs> He'll be reading uh, uh, some Robert Caro and uh, relaxing. Uh, well deserved break after uh, running. Veep, uh, one of the great shows of all time. Thank you, David. Thank Mandel. you. So fun. So fun. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for listening, and uh, that was uh, that was funny. And as you can tell, we're good friends and have been for a long time. By the way, that uh, beautiful music is from Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.